I want to jump back into biblical soul care, the importance of discernment. And this morning, what I want us to do is to do a part two. Um, we did not get finished the last time, uh, which was a Sunday before Christmas. And so I want to make sure that we come back and cover, because I think this is an important step when we think about how to discern, how to handle um, problems that we face in life. Because if we misdiscern something or we don't understand something properly, we're apt to seek faulty solutions. And what we seek in terms of salvation or hope matters from a biblical perspective. And so we can go off in error in two ways. Uh, the first way, obviously, is if we seek salvation in the wrong thing. But even before that, if we uh, wrongly discern a problem that sends us off in a direction of seeking salvation in the wrong thing. So we want to make sure that we're discerning properly. I want to give you a quote by George Swinnick, one of my favorite Puritans from his book, The Blessed and Boundless God. And I think this is important for us when we think about biblical soul care, because listen, there are a thousand things that we can measure our life by in the culture in which you and I live. And when you think about how we try to make sense of our life, there are a thousand frameworks or backdrops by which we try to make our life make sense. And I think Swinnick is aiming at the proper ideas here. And this is so important when we think about biblical discernment, particularly in the world in which you and I live. This is what he says. We never come to a right knowledge of ourselves until we come to a right knowledge of God. We never come to a right knowledge of ourselves until we come to a right knowledge of God. Okay, so how do we do that? We do that by biblical discernment. And when we're dealing with, with each other in terms of biblical soul care, it's important the language that we use. Now, last time we were describing this sort of in a more broad scale, we were talking about the ways in which we speak and the ways in which we understand each other and that sort of thing. But I want us to begin this process of learning to think biblically about our problems. And I want to do this by just giving in, in rapid fire several things that are really important up front, sort of uh, larger framework issues, larger categories from which we understand ourselves and our problems. And then I want us to get very practical. And I don't normally do this, but I'm going to use one slide today. One. Isn't that impressive? That's about as far as my technology uh, abil technological abilities go, so we'll limit it there. Um, so I want us to be very practical when we get to the end. So when we're dealing with, with particular issues, one of the things that's, that's um, most confusing about the culture in which you and I live in, and this is not unusual to our culture, this has happened for centuries since man has been around, um, we, we tend to um, describe and define the problems that we face in terms away from the scripture. And one of the most important things we can do is we can take the problems that you and I face and use the biblical language that's offered to us in scripture. This is one of the ways in which we see the beauty of the sufficiency of the Bible. Let me give you an example. Let's take something that we, we commonly hear about and some of us have been diagnosed with to some degree or another, this word depression. Now, that's, a, that's a, an okay term. There's nothing um, necessarily insidious about the term itself. The problem is the way in which we've defined it in our culture. 
when we use this term depression, we have ideas, some certain, certain ideas pop up into your mind about what you think is involved with that word. Maybe we wake up today and we say, I feel depressed. Well, this, this is one way to describe some of the things that we're experiencing, some of the ways that we're feeling. But most often when we use a term like that, one of the things that we mean is we associate that with some sort of disease or some sort of diagnosis that we think we have. Most often this is described in such a way to have the weight that you have some disabling psychological disability. And this is a problem uh, when, when it comes to the scripture, because when we begin to discern a, a term like that, and listen, biblical counseling doesn't dismiss the fact that we have depressive feelings. We have sad feelings. We have deep feelings of sorrow. We have those things. That is true. Even the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders that's used to diagnose these types of things in the secular culture, the descriptions that they give of these things are not untrue. They're, they're true things that we experience. Low appetite, not uh, w without the ability to sleep, maybe crying quite a bit, that sort of thing. Uh, maybe being depressed and overwhelmingly so for, um, for, for days at a time and, and not able to function, those sorts of things. Those things are true, but the way in which we describe those things uh, forces us to consider, do I have something that's wrong with my brain? Right? And so then we start seeking solution in that direction because of the way in which we've defined the problem. One of the things we need to start asking, and I challenge you to do this, and you can find the, the nine criteria of something like depression uh, listed on the internet from the DSM. You take all of those criteria and you start looking in the Bible to see if the Bible has anything to say about those particular criteria. Because here's what some people would do. Some people would say, well, the Bible doesn't have the word depression in it. So the Bible's not sufficient to talk about that issue. See, I want us to back up because what we've just done is we've discerned something by a label that's been given from, a, from humans, and we've said, well, God doesn't speak to that issue. Do you see the problem? So what we have to start doing is we have to define the problems that we have from a biblical perspective. Now, I would ask you, can we see in Scripture places in which the Bible describes what we describe as depression or depressive type feelings? And I would argue, absolutely. Now, this is the participatory part, is what are some of the, the passages that describe those types of feelings, those types of experiences, if you will, or what are some of the words, biblically speaking, that describe those types of human experiences that we have? What are some of those? Yeah, maybe, maybe being anxious, which often is associated as a precursor to depressive-like feelings. What are some of the other things? Yeah, Psalm 13. What, what are some of the biblical language that's used there? Yeah, being uh, lamenting. And is lamenting looked at as always being sinful? No. What about Psalm 42? My soul, my soul, why are you downcast within me, right? Or the term despair. We see these types of terms, which are really, I think, crucial from a biblical perspective. And now we begin to see how God describes this. One other thing that I think is really crucial is in the culture in which we live, we think about something like depression always in the category of bad, don't we? And so when we classify it that way, what are we trying to do? Anything possible to get rid of that feeling. Do you see how that works? But in the scriptures, is that always the case? You see, biblically, when we think about something like grief and overwhelming grief or lament, 
The Bible doesn't describe those things by their necessity as being evil within, in and of themselves. They're actually a part of the human experience that we, that we have here on earth post-Genesis 3. So if you lose a loved one, for example, and the writers of the DSM will tell you that this is true. Matter of fact, they were tweeting about it this weekend. But we have no way to measure legitimate human grief in the way in which we define these things. But the Bible describes these types of experiences as normative. And so what, what we have to start doing is understanding the, dis, the difference, the distinction between what God describes as something that's healthy and normal to the experiences that we, we have in a regular basis in a world that's cursed by sin versus what the culture describes. Because listen, based on how you define the experiences that you're feeling at this moment, it will send you into some direction to find help and hope. That's where often the deception lies. So we have to be biblically discerning people, biblical thinking people, not just about the solutions, but also about the means, the, the problems themselves, the definitions of the issues that we're all experiencing to some degree or another. Now, what are some of the, that language? What, what is some of that language? And, and this is just a, a, a cursory example. This is, this is not exhaustive by any stretch. But biblically, we see some of the experiences that we have that have now been labeled as disorders or something like that. But we see these biblical expressions in the scripture, things like downcast, despair, uh, being anxious. Anxious is, is something that's very common to our human experience. I'm going to use that as an example in just a bit to describe uh, categorically how we should understand that from a biblical perspective. And remember last time we talked about this issue of alcoholism or being an alcoholic. Well, that's the way that the, the secular world describes this. And they describe it as something that's genetic predisposition. And this is caused by some sort of um, you know, physiological problem. The Bible describes that in terms of you being a drunkard. It is a sin moral issue instead. And so it's important that we define these things from a biblical perspective. Let me give you one other that, that we have a tendency to use. I didn't put this one on here. I was thinking about it this weekend is, um, the ways we describe adultery in our culture. Think about how we describe adultery. We use different language, and you can see the sleight of hand in the ways in which we describe those things. We describe it as an affair. Well, there's nothing inherently wrong with using that terminology necessarily, but it certainly distances us from what the Bible describes as being sin. So using biblical language really helps us to frame it appropriately so that we seek the proper remedy when we describe these things, being quick-tempered, prideful, and arrogant, that sort of thing. So we have to build a biblical framework that helps us to understand these things. I've, I've adapted some of this from Dr. Powison just in basic questions that I want us to consider that helps us to arrive at a biblical definition. So that way, then it sets us up properly to, to seek solution from the scriptures. Now, when you begin to frame life out this way, you begin to see the beauty and the value of the scriptures. You begin to see it as all sufficient, that it has the answers that we need to live life the way that God intended for us to live in ways that are peaceful, in ways that are hopeful, in ways that are uh, aiming at the things that God intended us to aim at. So what are some of those questions? We've asked some of these before, but I want to revisit some of these to make sure that we're, we're discerning properly. Because remember, the way the Bible describes maturity okay, is, is two basic ways, the conforming to Christ 
And one of the primary ways outside of just the actions, the behaviors that we see that reflect the character of God, one of the primary ways that we see this maturity defined is by your ability to discern good and evil. That's what Hebrews 5.14 describes, that the ability to discern good and evil demonstrates your, your ability to be mature, or your, your, your level of maturity in the scriptures, because you're seeing good and evil from God's perspective. And you, you've got to remember, from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we see an alternate view of wisdom, an alternate view of what's good and evil. Remember, the serpent introduces this new way of wisdom where he says, did God really what? Say, it's a question of the sufficiency of that which comes from God to describe the experiences of human life or what is good on planet earth. And God has already described and defined that for us. This is the beauty of his word. And we have a tendency from time beginning to want to describe all of life in, in different categories. What does the Bible say about the information gathered? So we talked about data gathering, and this is that important point of how we begin to discern the information that we've put together. Remember the idea of the putting the puzzle together to see a person's life and understand it, whether it be your life or someone else's appropriately. So what does the Bible say about the information gathered? This is where you have to do homework as the one who's wanting to engage in care for someone else. You've got to study the scriptures to see what it says. Don't just shoot from the hip on some of these ideas. You, you need to discern, understand what the Bible says about these types of issues that a person is experiencing. I can remember early on uh, in counseling, and I still do this uh, sometimes, depending upon the issues that come up. Uh, it was frequent when people would come to see me. I was 25 years old, just fresh out of seminary, thinking I knew lots, but recognizing very quickly that I knew very little. Um, and you start to experience things in, in people's lives that, man, I didn't know what the Bible said about that. And I had to tell them, I, I'm confident that the Bible says something about this. And when you come back next week, I'm going to study the scriptures and I'm going to tell you what I think God says about these things. And so it's okay to pause, but we can be confident in what God says about the issues of life. Uh, if you don't know them, go back and find out what the scripture says about these things. The second question, what has the person tried as a solution to their problem? That will help you to discern a couple of things. Okay, Number one, it helps you to see what they're seeking as a solution. As they seek the solution, it tells you what they're hoping in, what they're placing their hope in to save them from whatever issue they're, they're struggling with. The second thing is it helps you to understand a little bit about what they think the problem really is. Okay? It helps you to understand what they think the problem really is. So you can recategorize that from a biblical perspective. Uh, what are God's goals for change? Helping, helping someone to understand what God's goals are in the midst of this issue is so helpful. For example, when we're walking through suffering, right, from a human disposition, all of us would agree and we could vote and it would be 100% in this room. If you're suffering, what's the one thing from a human perspective that we want more than anything in those moments? Get me out of here, right? Uh, some of you may be more holy than me, but that's what I say when I'm suffering. I want out of this thing, right? We don't like that. We like things to just rock along as if they're smooth and everything's going okay. But we see God's goals in suffering, that it produces character and hope that doesn't put us to shame. Those are worthy goals. We see that from a biblical perspective. I happen to be in Job in, in the, the yearly reading plan, right? And you see this unfold, the, the counselors of Job are foolish because they don't see God's goals for what's actually happening in Job's life. 
So we have to see God's goals for the situation that someone finds himself in. What are some of the biblical methods for accomplishing God's goals for change? Methods matter. Methods are not neutral. Methods are built upon what we think the problems are and the means we think change happens. I see this occurring in biblical counseling all the time. Well, I wouldn't call it biblical counseling, but it's often under the guise of biblical counseling is people want to choose and utilize methods from secular systems. You got to understand methods are built upon a system of hope and change. And in God's economy, God's methods are built upon us resting in Christ for hope, us resting in the work of the Holy Spirit, us learning to be patient, to wait upon the work of the Lord, that we trust his goals and methods for, for change. Are the behaviors appropriate for the situation? Do we see someone responding appropriately and in a biblically appropriate way for whatever the situation is? This helps us to discern what's going on. The next thing is what, lie, uh, what lies are believed, and you'll see this all the time. If I could boil down, I'll get to this one in a second. If I could boil down the basics of biblical soul care into one sentence, it would be this. And I probably said this before, and I'll say it again before we're done with this series, is your primary job in your own life and as you minister to the lives of others, is to just simply listen for unbiblical thinking and learn to correct it with biblical truth. So you ask yourself this question, what lies are believed or what lusts are being expressed through some sort of sinful pattern? You're learning to discern what is against the scripture and what's for the scripture. We affirm the things that scripture is for, the way scripture understands the problems we're facing, and we want to point out those areas in which we believe lies that are not appropriate to the scripture, not consistent with what God says, or that are inconsistent with patterns of living that we ought to be uh, pursuing. And then this next part, I want us to press the pause button and, and really pay attention to what's going on here. This is really important when we think about discernment, because what I see happening is we often miss what I call the theological ideal. Now, don't, don't get bogged down in that, that world. I'm going to explain this, but we need to pay attention to the verbs of people's lives. Okay. Now I'm not a, a, a grammarian, uh, a grammar Nazi. Pastor Rick seems to be somewhat of a grammar Nazi. I wish I were that talented, but I, I don't get into some of those details. But when we talk about the actions of people's lives or what people are pursuing, this is really, really important. And I want to think, I want us to think about this in the way in which you were made. Okay, in the way in which I was made as a human being, we were made to love God. Would you agree that Jesus boils this down, the, the teaching from the Old Testament? We think about somewhere like um, Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, chapter 5 and 6. <clears throat> we see that one of our primary duties is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, there's not a greater task on planet earth that you have been given as a human being, being made in the image of God, than to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a given. Every human being that exists, that is a primary goal. So what are some of the ways that we would see naturally, that we would see that we would be tempted to not live according to the way God designed us in a world cursed by sin? is that we would learn or desire now because of sin to love something or someone else more than we love God. There are constant patterns that we see. So, so the point is simply this. We will love something. You were made to love something. 
something, right? And the theological ideal is you were made and designed to love God. Now, we understand because of depravity and the way in which you were born into sin that now we're born in a way that that's not our primary love. But you were made to love God. And what do we see that begins to take its place? It's not some neutral category. We are actively pursuing love of something else because you were made to love. You were made to be affectionate towards something. So then we can recognize very clearly if we're not loving God well, we are in fact loving something else. Now, in a primary way, we see scripturally that that love originates in loving ourselves. And now the, the expression of loving ourselves looks like a thousand things scripturally in the Bible. And you see what happens? What happens is the world picks up on that. And they see these th a thousand expressions that are undesirable things that we begin to love other things more. And they try to give some sort of external remedy to fix that rather than saying, no, you were made to love God. Deny those things, mortify those things, and now learn to love God again through the means of scripture. So we have to pay attention to these primary things. What's another category? That the Bible describes, Psalm 46, that God is our refuge, a very present help in time of trouble. This is not the only place. This is a constant description of who God is on our behalf, that he is the place in which we hide. And we are meant to find solace and comfort and hope when we find ourselves hiding in God himself. And we see this unfold even more particularly in the New Testament when we find ourselves hidden in Christ, do you see the picture? Now, you were made for that. And if you were made for that, what's the constant temptation that we will see cropping up in our lives on a consistent basis? Is that we find ourselves not just not hiding in anything. You won't be neutral in this category because you were made to find refuge in something. And so where will you find refuge? You start to ask those questions. What are you finding refuge in? What do you find hope in? What do you wake up seeking to make you satisfied? When things get rough, where do you run? Where does your mind go to, to calm it down? You see, you were made to find that refuge and comfort in God. But we often find it in other things, whatever that might be. We were designed and made to hope in God. And these are the actions of our life, the verbs of our life. You were made to hope in God, but what do we often find ourselves doing? And you'll see the passages that are associated here is we're not told to love the things of the world. We're told to love God, to hope in him, to not hope in the things that we see in the world, denying lust of the flesh, the boastful, boastful pride of life. We are taught to hope in God. One of the most amazing things to me that God does on our behalf is he allows, brings suffering into our life for this intention. When we don't seek it ourselves, when we don't seek hope in God ourselves, he allows and brings suffering into our life to produce this in us, to return us back to him, to show us that all the things that we place our hope in are actually hopeless in the end. They're unsturdy and unstable things that we give ourselves to. And God is kind and gracious to allow suffering in our life to expose that. Now do you see the beauty and the kindness of your God? 
That now he helps to dispossess all those things that we've been placing our affections and our hopes toward. And he's calling just simply you back to him saying, no, you were made to hope in me. And this is actually best for you. This is the beauty of what we're trying to discern in our lives. And these are four basic categories that help us to see these things. And there are many more, but these are four basic. And then the last one that I'll mention this morning is to fear God. We often think about the opposite of fear, the opposite of anxiety, or the opposite of worry being peace. That's not true. Peace is a byproduct. You see, you were actually created to fear. Do you understand that? So when we think about anxiety, anxiety is in this broader category biblically as a byproduct of what you were designed for, which is to fear. You were to fear God. And what happens when we find ourselves being full of worry or full of anxiety or full of fear of something else? We find ourselves trusting in or hoping in or fearing another thing. Sometimes it's another person. Sometimes it's an entity. And we begin to live life in direction of that thing. So as we fear someone else or as we fear something else, now what has control of our life? In effect, what happens is we, whatever it is that we fear, you were made this way. Whatever it is that you fear, you worship. Psalm 115 describes this. That whatever you fear in life is what you give yourself to in affection. And so, yeah, that person that you give yourself to in, in that way, that you fear the most, you fear what they say or what they'll do, and you think that that dictates your life, your life is rotating around that person. You weren't made for that. That's why you find yourself constantly waking up just on edge and rigid and afraid all the time. Because you weren't made to live in that type of relationship with that person. You were made to fear God and God alone. And we begin to see in our lives this discernment that we, we were not made to live in relation to those types of things. We were made to fear God. And so what's the correction of that? We learn to deny this place of privilege to this thing that we're fearing, this temporal thing, a person or a thing, whatever that might be. And we learn to fear God. We grow in the fear of God. Why? Because that's the way that you were made. And what's the byproduct of that? Now we fear God appropriately and we have peace. Because if we fear God appropriately, what do we see? We fear God, we fear his wrath. And what's the satisfaction for the wrath of God? Christ. Christ paying for you, in which we've gotten to in Ephesians chapter 2 already, Ephesians 2.14. He himself is our peace. It becomes a byproduct of the beauty of what God does, not just in meeting our need as the one we should fear, but also providing, making provision for that which satisfies our soul. This is the beauty of who God is and what he does. And so being able to discern these things in which we were created for and then seeing these constant acts of lust or fear in other things or hope in other things. And this is the stuff life is made of. These are the experiences that you and I have on a consistent basis where we see our lives being disordered. Disordered from what? The way it was intended to be ordered in relation to God. Remember the quote from uh, George Swinnick. You cannot understand yourself without first understanding God. So seeing your life from a theological disposition first now helps you to discern, why is my life not seeming like it's going right? And the framework, the biblical framework that we're describing begins to make sense of your life 
why you feel the way you feel, why you experience the things you experience, and so on. Even in some way, when we describe the ideas of uh, lamenting and being depressed, let's take Jeremiah, for example. Was Jeremiah sinful in his expression of lamentation? I would argue no. But in our culture, we would diagnose him as having some sort of disorder. You see, here's the problem with that, is that Jeremiah was actually seeing from God's perspective. And he was lamenting the disposition of the people of God because they were walking headlong away from God. And he was lamenting properly from God's perspective, grieving over the disposition of God's people. And so it's important that we discern because, listen, counsel means that we, we give counsel of God that leads to action. That's the, that's the purpose of imparting wisdom, God's perspective that leads to a response in us as people. And so we have to make sure that we're understanding this appropriately. Now that we've discerned, we have to give counsel. And what does that look like? This is uh, letter I, if you're following in the outline. When we see how God is related to our problems, we more easily recognize that what is wrong with us requires God-related solutions. So all of this happens in a chain. If we're discerning the problems rightly, now it puts us in desperate hope on the sufficiency of the word to find what God's solution is. And that solution, again, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just uh, an exemplary list. We begin to find the beauty of the solutions that come from God in terms of things like grace and peace and mercy and strength and hope and comfort. And listen, this puts you in a very uncomfortable place. I get this. We don't like this as human beings. And this is why we seek other solutions. Because this puts you in a place where you are hopeless if God doesn't help. And we get impatient when we find ourselves in a place like that. And what do we start doing? We start seeking solutions that we can accomplish with our flesh. Even things that sound good to our ears. One of the most important things that I think the church today needs to learn is how to patiently wait upon God for his solution, for his grace, for his mercy, for his peace, for his comfort, for his change. And that's where we need to find ourselves. That's a healthy place is us finding ourselves in, in, in healthy waiting disposition before the Lord for his strength, for his comfort, for his refuge, for his hope, and so on. Now I want to get to the slide. And what I want us to do is to try and make this as practical as possible. I'll give you another quote from George Swinnett, can you tell I was reading him this weekend? And uh, <clears throat> in general, wisdom entails perceiving things accurately and then taking action in accordance with those correct perceptions. That's what wisdom means. So we have to discern this appropriately and then taking action that's in accordance with that proper discernment. And that's what we're looking at here. Now, I put the whole slide in your notes. That's a little bit of cheating, but we'll, we'll move past that a little bit and start working here. Look at it. I love it when technology works. Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, I, Paul Tripp, I get this from Paul Tripp. He calls it something else. I call it the laundry list because it just makes more sense to me. Uh, when I went off to college, my mom used to do my laundry. This is terrible confession, but my mom used to do my laundry. And then in college, I had to start learning to do the laundry. And I don't know that I paid attention during that mom lesson. And so what I did was just took all of my clothes, threw it in the wash on cold and hope for the best, right? And, uh, and out it comes. 
And then when I got married, I learned a little bit more about how to do that. And, and I confess that I don't do laundry very often. I mean, that's why you have children. I'm just kidding. That's not why you have children, but sort of. Um, and so, so one of the things that I learned is, yeah, you're not supposed to just do the cold thing and throw everything in the bucket. Um, is that you have to sort laundry, right? Lights, whites, darks, and delicates. I learned about that when I got married as well. And so you separate these things out and you have a proper wash cycle by which you clean the clothes and that's, that's appropriate. I think that's a, a really good analogy when we think about problems that we face in human life is not everything's a nail, so you don't always swing a hammer at it. So you have to learn to discern properly from a biblical perspective how God has made us and then the problems that we face in life. You've got to begin to sort those things out, all right? When I have young counselors, one of the things that they tell me consistently is, is something like this. Well, uh, Dr. J, it, it's moving so fast, I don't know when they're talking. I don't know what's important information and what's not. This is, this is sort of helping you to sort that information, right? It's sort of like a young quarterback in the NFL, and he says, man, the information's moving so fast. You teach them how to read defenses to slow the game down. It's the same way when you think about life. You, you understand the way God made humanity to act and to live, the way he designed us, and then you slow the information down to, to put information in its appropriate category to understand a human life and what's going on in life, okay? So what I'm gonna do is, so, you, so none of you think that I'm talking about you today, I'm gonna use an example of children. Is that okay, right? Because <clears throat> um, if I use some other example, all of you be like, how did you know that was me? Yes, we all have those problems. Okay, so let's take, for example, I don't know if you've ever had kids, um, you experience bickering and you come on the scene and they're both yelling at one another or other potentially violent things that happen at young ages and, and something is going on, right? <clears throat> and so maybe let's say they're breaking over a toy or something. And then they're both saying, well, he did this and she did this and back and forth. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? Okay. So we walk up and that's the situation that's happening. So one of the things that you'll see in scripture is you'll see Jesus ask this question. What, what do you want me to do for you? He's asking a what question. So in, in life, we had different situations. Okay. And what I want you to see, you can go ahead and look at your notes and you'll see all four categories. The two categories on the left, if I were to just bring this up, okay, because we're running out of time. The two categories on the left are things that I would describe in terms of what is seen. What is seen with the natural eye. Everybody who has vision that's been given vision by God can see these things unfolding naturally. And this is why, um, you know, in the world, they can understand certain problems that we face and they give solution to those problems because there are things that unfold before our eyes that are unwanted that we want to get rid of. Okay. And so these are the scene, what I would call the scene things, the situation. So you walk up, you're the parent and you're starting to discern what's going on. And one of the first questions you should probably ask is, tell me what happened right? And then it goes something like this. Well, I was playing with this toy and then she came and did this. And when she did this, I did this. And, I, and then you say something like, well, why did you do that? What's the, always the answer? I don't know because they can't discern what's going on in the heart at that moment, but they can tell you what happened, right? Yes. I yelled and screamed at her or I threw my Hot Wheels toy or I swung and missed or whatever the case might be when she did this. Okay. So now that's the situation. Now, I'm not trying to explain or discern why a person did something at this point. I'm just trying to see what is going on, okay? Now, 
One of the things that we've found ourselves doing is in the culture at large is understanding the situation and then just trying to fix the situation, right? Well, just remove yourself from the situation and everything will be okay. Do you see what that, that places your hope in? Is your circumstances changing and that you are now at the mercy of that circumstance changing for hope? You aren't made for that. You were made to hope in God regardless of the situation that you find yourself in. You tell a woman who's walking through a divorce right now, a difficult situation, a husband who's been difficult to her, and you give her advice like that, the way the culture would. It's just change your situation and things will get better. And now she's at the mercy of this situation changing and maybe this man changing. And there might not be any hope of that. And now what do you find, what, what is she, where does she find herself? more hopeless than when she began. You can't just unfold the situation itself and think that if we fix the situation, everything will go away. That's not what God promises in the Bible. In fact, he often brings about very difficult situations in our life. And the key is not that we brought that about on ourselves; It's how we respond to those situations. And so we have to categorize these appropriately. What happened to you? That's what I'm asking there. And then the response, I want to know from each kid, okay, what did you do in response? Well, I yelled and screamed or I threw a truck or I did whatever, okay? Or I took my toys and I went home or whatever the case might be. That's the way they responded. Now, what we're doing here is we're seeing some understanding of what Jesus would describe in Luke chapter 6. We're seeing the fruit that comes out in response. You were made as a person to respond to life. God reveals himself, and as he reveals himself, it was intended that you respond appropriately to his revelation in terms of worship of life. That in everything you do, it's honor and glory to God. Are you seeing how that unfolds? But when sin comes in, when, as situations happen, how do we find ourselves responding? In a way that's driven by love of self, not love of God. And what we see in our responses, and these are attitudes, actions, emotions, and words. We see coming out of us the fruit that's, being, that's boiling up from within. Now, I'm not getting to within just yet. So we want to be able to see what did you do in response to this situation? I yelled and screamed. I ran away. When they said this, I clammed up even though I was seething inside. I didn't do anything. I didn't say anything. I froze, whatever the case might be. Or I blew up. I started yelling and screaming uncontrollably. When I saw traffic, I was supposed to be at work at this time and I just had road rage. You know, that's your response. The emotions, right? So emotions are important. They're not evil or wicked or sinful in and of themselves. They're important. The words that you say, that sort of thing. Now, are you seeing the, the picture? Okay, and these are the things that we can see. And this is how you sort the issue. This is how you discern more properly, more appropriately. But listen, that's not all there is to life. You're not just an external being. That's not all there is to life. It's important. This is an important part of the story. This, is, this makes up some of the information that's really important to us, but it, it tells a deeper story. And here's the deal. The culture can see these things. And so the culture is built on just trying to um, change your situation or to help you to change your response to it. And what I'm saying is it's not that those things don't sound helpful. It's not that they don't even pr provide temporary re relief to some degree. 
But what I'm saying is that they're not the things you were designed to hope in to make your life go better. And we find ourselves more disordered in the future. So these are the same things. So when we talk about, can the secular world help us understand stuff? Yes, they can from this perspective. And so they, they wrongfully discern something because it's not the full picture. And so they're seeking remedy because they don't hate people. They want to help people. But they're seeking remedy that short circuits the way you were made and what was intended to give you peace in life. Are you following that? So this is critical. Now we get to the, the secondary parts. And these last two boxes are what I would call the unseen and this is the way the Bible talks about us is what, what is most critical, most important, what drives the responses that you have. You see, when you yell and scream at things, that's not the whole of the story. Well, I did this because she said this. No, if that's the case, then she dictates who you are. You weren't made for that. Okay, so your, your life is wrongfully ordered. It's intended to be ordered in relation to God. So what is it revealed? It reveals what's in your heart. What you think about most is you and the pleasure of you or pleasing something else other than God. So we have to start seeing the thoughts and the motives. Now, what do I mean by this? This is biblical terms, the biblical ideas is, in, in Ephesians four, for example, one of the primary things that we see that's most important is renewing our thinking, making sure we understand who God is because we can't understand ourselves unless we understand God. So thinking rightly about God, one of the most important things that is that, that a church can do is constantly preach the word so that we, we constantly are challenged with who God really is because it's only in relation to him that we see ourselves. So thinking rightly about God, which now helps us to think rightly about everything that's made, including you. And so changing our thinking. So in those situations, we have certain thoughts and this is the, this is where we start to get to the nitty gritty of this situation is uh, is my thinking during that situation consistent with who God is and who he made me to be and all other created things? Because it's at that moment that our worship starts to be aligned in a different direction and toward other things. Does that make sense? The, 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 the affections that come out of us in the responses, the, the fruit that we see coming out, we start to see its allegiance. We start to see the heart's allegiance here. So we have to renew thoughts. And then motives. In the Bible, it's, it's termed things like desires and affections, the things that drive you. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says it's the now that we're redeemed in Christ, it's supposed to be the love of Christ that controls or compels us, that motivates us. Because this is the way you were made, and God's rightfully repairing that in you. But we tend to live for ourselves. He goes on and tells us in that next verse that um, Christ died for what purpose? So that you now may no longer live for you. But in the flesh, Paul talks about this in the New Testament, in the flesh, we still find ourselves teetering between uh, full devotion, living for love of God, as opposed to living for the love of ourselves. So when we think about thoughts and motives, this is where the game is won and lost, is now what's driving your responses, is what were you thinking in that moment and what was it that you were desiring most? What did you want? Because that really tells us what the issues, as the Bible would describe, are going on in your heart. So the responses are important, but just to fix the responses, you don't get to the heart. And so if you just fix responses or try to change the situation and that's all you do, then what you're doing is creating a pharisaical response where the heart doesn't change, but you're wanting what you want on the outside. And this is how the Bible describes that we deceive ourselves. 
So what we have to pay attention to, and I'll close with this, what we have to pay attention to is the world system moves in direction this way, okay? Is we see the situation, the world sees the responses, and we try to fix it moving that way. Is we're going to change the inner man, we're going to make you who you want to be. You ever heard that term? Be the person that you want to be. And they say, this is how you do it. You start with changing, choose the situations that you want. Or respond, you're in control of yourself. Empower yourself to respond this way and life will be hunky-dory, right? That sort of thing. But what they're saying is you can become the person you want to be, right? And you can be the one who's in charge of your own heart as opposed to learning to submit it to who God is and what he requires. You see, biblically, we have to understand life works in the opposite direction. Life works in the direction of we have to learn to be ruled in our heart, in our desires, in our thoughts, because that's what's ruling us in those moments. When a situation occurs, my responses are driven by what I love most and want most and what I think to be true about God and me and everything else in that moment. That's how you biblically discern. So when we think about discernment, particular situations that you find yourself into, pay attention to the situation, pay attention to a person's responses, but then don't neglect to ask the questions that the Bible asks of us is all of those things are driven. All of them are driven. This is why you can't fix a person with steps and stages of do one, two, three, four, five, and then you'll be the person that you want to be. Is because they miss the target of the heart. You have to begin to renew the mind based on the scriptures to see God rightly and to see all created things in relation to him rightly. And now we begin to see motives change, affections change, the fear of God. Remember this, in the Proverbs, Proverbs 9, 10, I'll finish with this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1, 7, he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So take out the Lord for a second. This is what I call an anthropological principle, right? Take out the Lord for a second and you fill in the gap for whatever it is that you love and are affectionate and you fear the most losing in your life. That's the thing that drives who you are. The fear of blank is the beginning of your wisdom. And what's wisdom based on what Swinnick said? Perceiving rightly and then responding appropriately. See, the issue is you perceive reality from what it is that you fear most. So we begin to discern by breaking that down and is it what we fear most, the fear of the Lord? That's why our wisdom that we apply is wrong and we find our life disordered, responding inappropriately to situations. Because it's not the situation that I'm after changing. It's learning to change my heart because no matter the situation I find myself in, I am still responsible to God for how I respond in a way that honors him and glorifies him no matter the situation that we find ourselves in. And this is how you can be at peace and not at the mercy of all the terrible situations that we might find ourselves in. Are you seeing that? This is the beauty of biblical discernment when we are ruled by Christ and none other. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're grateful for the time that you give us. Thank you so much for just the practicality of your wisdom in the word. And I pray, God, that you help us to see ourselves the way that you built us, the way that you made us. Help us to put proper emphasis and importance on discerning from your perspective. Make us wise, Lord, according to you. Help us to fear you above all things. May it be so in Christ's name. Amen.